it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 629 for March 13th, 2020. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is one of the favorite guests of Chit Chat Across the Pond, Dr. Marianne Gary of the University of Waikato. And uh, welcome back to the show, Crusher of Dreams. Yeah, but I'm not crushing dreams today. I know, I know. I'm, expand- I'm-, I'm expanding dreams. <laughs> and also trying not to touch my face. There you go. Aren't we all? I'm going to get a little, yeah. uh, uh, some red hot chili peppers, dice them up real small, put them in a snack pack Ziploc and dip my fingers in them throughout the day. I'll only touch my eyes and my nose and stuff a couple of times before I'll stop. Right. You know what? That is some psychology in action. <laughs> That was really good. I asked uh, Marianne to come on because uh, I read an article that was really interesting, but I need some adult supervision to understand and interpret it. And I wanted somebody to argue with. And Marianne's usually good for that. Um, This all started when uh, Tom Merritt on the Daily Tech News show talked about a report in Science Daily and a couple of other um, websites of a study done done out of the University of Washington, which hypothesized that learning to program didn't depend as much on math skills, but rather was more correlated with language learning skills. And if this was found to be true, it brings into question, why do we have to have these higher level math requirements in universities for programming courses if it's really the ability to learn a language that matters? And um, so I dug in a little bit and I found the original paper, paper published as an open source paper in Nature. And I wanted to kind of talk through uh, what I learned and maybe what, how Marianne could interpret things better for me and, and tell me how I'm wrong. Does that sound good, Marianne? <laughs> I, I cannot think of any better fun. Absolutely. Well, the, the paper, so again, what they were trying to prove uh, or they theorized was that they could find a correlation between language learning and learning to program. And they referred to this as the first investigation of the neurocognitive predictors of learning to program in Python. So what the, okay, she just made a babbling hand gesture, like blah, blah, blah. That's just psychobabble. Okay, good. Um, so I, I, I was really proud of the fact that I understood most of what this paper said, with a few exceptions that I'll get into in a, in a moment. The first thing they did was there were 36 final participants in the study. Uh, 18 to 35 years old, right-handed, native English speakers with no exposure to a second natural language before the age of six. So my first question, can you draw any correlation from 36 people? Well, can you call it a viable correlation? Is that really a, a big enough sample set? Uh, well, the answer to that question is it depends on what they're trying to to do with the data. So they have lots and lots of measures from different people. Um, and, and what they're, can I just give a little caveat by saying this is not really my area? Absolutely. I mean, I know some of this, okay. I know some of this work, um, and so on, but. Oh, I forgot. I you're one of those people like, likes to be right and know what you're talking about. And I, I work under no such restrictions. I'm an engineer reading a scientific paper on, on this. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't like to really talk about my expert area. So all the caveats apply. Um, I I mean, yes and no. So they've got lots and lots of data from a relatively small number of people. uh, Mm -hmm. And the answer to your question really depends on how big the size of the effect is that we're looking for. So in a very large, if the effect they're looking, if the effect that exists out in the world or in their sample is 
large, then you need, you know, the larger it is, the fewer number of people that you have. Having said that, uh, most of the time correlations aren't stable without large numbers. But can I just slide you into the bigger picture here? <laughs> Dang it. Uh, sure. Okay. So the bigger picture here, because I know you well enough to know the little rantlet that you're going to go on, <laughs> which is that, oh, of course, numbers matter. Now, if you look at, because you can, this is open source, so you can put this open access, you can put this on, you know, your show notes and on your website. But if everyone goes, and you can do this right now, goes to the page where it's got the four really pretty colorful graphs. I'm mm -hmm. having trouble finding page numbers here, but it looks to me like it's page three in the PDF. See, it's got those four panels of of graphs. And if you look at the one that says C, what you see is there well, is. Hang on. I don't want to get elsewhere. to the conclusion because yeah. we haven't explained what the tests were yet. I, I want to give people okay. a little bit more context. But you're okay, right. Those, pre okay, those okay. pretty pictures will matter. So there are um, pretty, yeah, and, and my rantlet is uh, different than what you think, um, oh, when, oh, oh. which is going to make this more fun. When Tom first put this up, uh, basically, yeah. they found a correlation with uh, language learning. Uh, people who were good at learning languages were good at, at uh, learning to uh, code. In this, well, that yeah, they found a correlation between a number of things, or a number of things predict how quickly you learn Python, right? And language. So, so it is specific. Uh, they they had them take the Code Academy courses on how to learn Python, and I'm real familiar mm -hmm. with those because I learned JavaScript using Code Academy. That was one of the things I used to jumpstart my ability to learn it through from Bart. So, um, yep. this is a a thing where they give you a little task and they say, okay, you know write hello world in Python, blah, blah, blah. And you type in, you know, they tell you how to do it and then you do it and then you practice it a couple of times and they have you refresh and they go back and forth. It's really a great way to learn the syntax and, and to actually execute the steps of writing a program. Um, yep. Then they may have them do a, pro a project at the end. Right. They have a do a project at the end. And they also had, um, they looked at uh, the, the conclusions were at the learning rate um, they looked at programming accuracy and declarative knowledge. Those were the three things. And then they, they mm -hmm. correlated a bunch of other stuff to that. So what they're trying to look for is, does this, is there a, a, a higher uh, relationship between language aptitude and being able to code? So keep that in mind because at the end or much later, we'll get into my disagreement maybe to some extent with some of the conclusions, but overall, I don't disagree. I mean, I don't find that a lot of flaws in that. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is very narrow. It's the language Python. And they do talk about that. They say, you know, maybe if this was Java, which is in a very natural language, uh, maybe we wouldn't come with, with the same results. So it's, it's Python. It's using it through this coding, to, through this coding learning tool, right? But why should Python be different from another language? I mean, it is different from another language because that's why it has its own name. <laughs> right, right. But but I mean, like, what's so different about like what is massively conceptually different? So from some Python? some languages are uh, you could read them, you could look at it, and you could read it, and you might not be able to write in Python, and you might not be able to do the you know figure out how to do a a, a, a loop in the logic or something. But you never having seen Python before could read it. You could look at it, and but there's a lot of languages you can't. 
They just don't read like anything. You know, they don't read like sentences at all. So that's why they said maybe Java would be different. And we haven't tested it on other languages. This was only done. And they were, they were really good about saying it was this narrow test. This is what we looked at. So that's kind yeah. of why they were, they were saying, okay, just for, just in this case for Python. Like, I mean, you can imagine assembly language, right? That's ones and zeros. Your yeah. language ability might have nothing to do with it. Um, but one of the things they look for when they were talking about, uh, about math, and this is going to eventually get to where I get, find a little bit of flaw is, uh, the, the math thing they looked for was numeracy. And I, I looked up numeracy. Where was, I wrote the definition down somewhere. Um, oh shoot, where'd it go? It was basically like working with numbers. You know, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't, it, it it was is more akin to arithmetic than not higher level math. Uh, the definition I found was the ability to understand, manipulate, and use numerical information, including probabilities. Well, probabilities are quite conceptual. Yeah, that that does start to get there. But but if you go into the computer science program, it's calculus that they need you to take and differential equations. It's yeah, it but might you don't be need statistics. differential equations to to do programming. I mean, so, when, did you, when did you ever insert a differential equation into a program? So I'm not, I'm not a programmer. So uh, that, that's not okay. a, a, to be fair, I never used differential equations in engineering either, but I still had to learn them. I mean, you could kind of yeah. use this for a lot of things. Um, but it, let's, let's put that up as the tease because that is going to be part of my, um, my, my rantlet when we get there. Um, well, so, can, okay. Do you, have you, because I can tell you the kind of items that are on that scale. So it's not just like, hey, Bob, what's an integer? Okay. What kind of stuff is in it? Well, it, here are some examples of items like, imagine that we roll a fair six-sided die a thousand times out of a thousand rolls. How many times do you think the die would come up as an even number? So that's the so probability. Conceptual level. Yeah. So it's conceptual right. level stuff. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. It's more than uh, arithmetic. The, I'll give you that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of, yeah, I think the conceptual level thing is important. So one of the, let's, let's back into what they, what they did test and some of how they tested. One, one part of the research was to run EEGs, that's electroencephalograms, I believe, on participants. Yeah. They stick, you stick uh, little probes on your brain, well, on your, on your head. On your scalp. On your scalp. Because you're measuring activity at the level of uh, that you can detect at the level of the, that transmits through your brain into your scalp. Okay. And they did it on, and I'm quoting here, resting state, beta power, and low gamma power. What? <laughs> what is that? Yeah. Do you know? Really what they're doing is, yeah, they're just recording the, you know, your brain produces electrical activity, right? Mm -hmm. That's what, that's what they're measuring with an EEG. So they're, Measuring the electrical activity of your brain at rest. Now, I just want to say, here, and, and to be fair, anyone who does this kind of work would would concede that this is this has to be true. But it's it's hard to think about what your brain is doing when it's at rest because what do you really? When are you really at like how? What does at rest mean? Mm -hmm. Does it mean when I like? So there are networks that are active when your brain is not obviously engaged in doing anything except let's just say keeping you alive mm -hmm. and uh 
not daydreaming sometimes or daydreaming or what it's just very hard just unless you're some kind of zen master and can i just say for the record you and i are not zen masters <laughs> right to to not be thinking about anything in particular so it's just really hard to think about what it means when your brain is at rest having said that let's just assume that we all can gather around the room except separately in our own homes on skype because of the virus but uh, and agree what it means to have your brain be at rest. And what we're doing is measuring just electrical activity when your brain is in this at rest state. And okay. particularly what they are doing is, and they said this, they developed this ahead of time. They were really going to measure the electrical activity, not of your whole brain or just various parts of their brain until they put, until they decided they found something that worked. But, but uh, activity in your brain in networks that have been associated with language learning. Right. So they, right. so since they had that, and that was fair because they started with a hypothesis of we want to see if anything correlates this, the learning of Python correlates to the learning of languages. So they had done these brain activity tests on, on participants to see if their, uh, what their language learning capability was. And then now looking at, did they end up, this is how they measured, are you a good language learner? Well, they measured, they used prior research showing activity in these particular I don't know, it was multiple networks, but one or more networks in the in prior research, I don't know if it's their prior research, but in prior research had been associated with this the speed at which someone could learn a second language. Right? Okay. So then they so, measured these same uh, these people. Yeah. So they that. said, Oh, other people have found that it accounts for mo the majority, not even, you know, uh, the majority of variants in which someone can learn a second language. A foreign language. Foreign, if you're, unless you're French, because the work I know of is French. So, <laughs> right? And then they take that and they say, oh, okay, so prior research that we're going to build on, you know, because we're scientists, has found this relationship between activity and these brain networks. And so we're going to measure the same brain networks and do the same kind of measuring activity and see if we also can get that, and that activity predicts the variation in and and when we get to the part where we're looking at graphs i'll tell you what we mean by variation so the variation and how quickly someone learns uh python okay 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 so um there's there's one thing uh well there there are quite a few that things little things i don't understand but but in all of these graphs they show um it's it's a scatter graph and it's got a line through it and then it's got a number it's got r squared equals and some number and this appears to be yeah. How well correlated it is? It is, it is, uh, yeah, related. The bigger that number, the more correlation yeah. they found, the lower the variance yeah. or something? Yes. So I want you to, if you look at these graphs here, if this R squared, it's a regression, it's, it's the percentage of variance accounted for by this regression, by this correlation. If there was no relationship, that line would be straight. You mean horizontal? Yeah, yeah, horizontal, right? <laughs> and the R square would and the R square would be zero. Oh, okay, okay. And to the and so what we're talking about conceptually, this R square. See if this makes sense. R square works like this: if I don't know anything about the rate at which people learn Python, then what do I what do I say? I just I just have to guess, mm -hmm. right? And then that's just that is a. a a complete sphere of dots, right? Okay, sure. Yeah. Ran randomly okay, located. Yeah. If I know that in the mean, 
a group of people like this might learn Python at a rate, let's just make it up. Uh, let's make it up like uh, that the that the relationship would be. I don't know what what's twice as likely. What is. Yeah, yeah. Well, the yeah, like the mean might be. I'm going to learn this amount per day, right? Okay. Then if All I right. said, "Hey, I've got, I'm going to run this experiment. How how well, how fast do you think people are going to learn?" Well, I would have to guess the mean. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what you would have to guess. Okay. So really what you're doing when you're doing this regression equation here is you're saying, how much can I reduce the error in predicting? Because you see some of these dots are not on the line. Right. In all of these plots, right? Some of these, Mm -hmm. this is error in prediction. So what you want to do is you want to see what can you measure to make more dots fall on the line, right? So you reduce your prediction error. That's conceptually what we're doing here. We're trying to reduce the prediction error. So the higher that R square goes the better off we are so the 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 heat map graph which is figure two if anyone's following along um it's a circular heat map which i don't know if that's somebody's head or what it is but it is it is someone's head that's the activity on their brain so that's their little nose and their oh okay and yes okay so then they've circled three dots and they say for example rate of learning r squared equals 0.14 and this right. is, and the title of the thing says, resting state beta power predicts Python learning rate. Right. So 0.14 doesn't seem like a real big number. If that's, if that's a measure of how well they've been able to predict it. Well, it's not, but it's, the, it's, it's better. It's the point is that it's better than zero and predicts okay. means just predicts only means associated with, it doesn't mean the whole ball game. Okay. So it means relative to just guessing what we knew before without this information, how much error are we saving ourselves? Okay. Okay. So uh, th- that, that's a, that's a good one uh, to walk through. Then I think these, these heat map ones first, even though they come later in the, in the, uh, in the article, because the, it says resting state beta power predicts Python learning rate. And that one has an R squared of 0.14, um, which is not, not super highly co- correlated. It is better than zero, but, but they show resting state low gamma power predicts post-test declarative knowledge, and that one's R-squared 0.24. So this is, what what do they mean by declarative knowledge? Because that's different than the Python learning rate. Uh, Oh, oh, I remember. They they combine two things here in declarative knowledge, and this gets to be, this one gets really interesting to me. Declarative knowledge was two factors, fluid reasoning and another gummy word, uh, right frontotemporal low gamma power. Those were those two things. That was that was declarative knowledge. So their it's declarative so- knowledge is just accuracy on no, a 50 ac- item voice test. Accuracy right? was was a separate one. Programming accuracy uh, had well, their measure of declarative knowledge, which they say just above the in the paragraph, the two paragraphs just above the results section, is defined as. Total accuracy on a 50-item multiple-choice test composed of 25 questions assessing the general purpose of functions. Okay, so, that, so that's example, like, a, that's like right? an understanding, right? Declarative yeah, knowledge. Exactly. Like, I understand yeah, yeah, why yeah. you would build this kind of function to do that kind of well, thing, as opposed well, to I can type uh, the syntax. It's actually just facts. Like, which of the following pieces of code is formatted correctly? That's a fact, right? So I don't have to know where I would use it or I would not use it. Oh, I have to be able to say, what does this function do? I can define it. But it's just like, you that is a prerequisite to being able to use something. Like I have to know, for instance, 
what the steering wheel does before I should be able to drive a car and when I should turn the wheel in which direction. Okay. Okay. Which you've right. only recently learned, but, um, okay. Hey, <laughs> not, not exactly true. So, uh, okay. I'm, I misunderstood that part. So that, so that's good. Um, also, can I just say to all your listeners that the most, that, um, that Sven, the Volvo has been hit twice and both times Devin did it. <laughs> well, no, one time it was in a parking lot when Devin was here or you were here and she was, oh no, she was there. Well, anyway, we shouldn't get into that. <laughs> okay. No, I think we should get into it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the fluid intelligence also has a very specific function. Um, so. The fluid uh, reasoning. Yeah, it's actually, okay. Fluid intelligence is really, really interesting. So, because there's a couple of measures that they have there. So working memory, working memory measures your ability. And the memory is kind of a weird name here, but working memory is something that you need in the moment. So that's why it's called working memory. So you need to bring things to mind from your memory and keep them at your attention right now when you need them. So they ref they measure what we call <coughs> your ability to maintain information. So in by the, the way, for the nerds in the audience, which is every single person listening, working memory is yeah. like RAM. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, like, RAM. it's RAM. That's what random access memory, the RAM in your computer oh, only holds the, yeah. the stuff in its brain until you restart and then it goes away. Yes. I had, it's funny you say that because I have described it that way too. But here's the other thing. Um, there's another part that's related, very closely related to working memory or RAM, which is, and I don't know what you're going to map this on to. Fluid intelligence, and here that I think the word fluid is important. So fluid measures your ability to get rid of that information when you don't need it. Oh. So one is one, yeah. So one is like hold and maintain, and you know juggle, and the other is ditch. Hmm. Right. So they're like brake and gas pedal. So so someone with um, I know someone, and I'm not going to use their name here, but Steve is listening, and it's not him, and he yet he will know who I'm talking about. So uh, fluid, you call it fluid memory? Fluid intelligence. Fluid intelligence. Fluid intelligence means being able to get rid of that piece of information. Like you're you're working on a program, a problem on your computer, and you can't fix it, and you can't fix it, and then suddenly it gets fixed, and you don't know why, and you just go, okay, moving on. Fluid intelligence. But fluid, fluid intelligence, intelligence goes, no, dead. but I got to know why. And you can't let it, that piece of information will drive you crazy. Well, I mean, sort of. It's it's like this. Like I'm supposed to be focusing on a task and I keep being distracted by somebody else. Right? Well, they talk, called that inhibitory control, which I, th yeah, I define as not it squirrel. Kind of, it, it, yeah. Yeah. Actually, not. Yes. Yes, it is. Oh, look, squirrel. Yeah. So in, in fact, it's inhibitory control is related to fluid intelligence, hmm. right? So, and I should say that fluid, I think we've talked about this on the pod, podcast before, but uh, fluid intelligence has a counterpart called crystallized intelligence, which is just the accumulation of knowledge and like declarative knowledge and other things, right? So as you get older, your crystallized intelligence increases, it's domain specific knowledge. Right. And your, I'm sad to say, fluid intelligence <laughs> decreases. Yeah, right. Your ability to... Yeah, the speed and processing speed, for instance. Well, in fact, well, your fluid intelligence that doesn't decrease. That's not actually correct. Your processing speed decreases. So, right, it, it sometimes takes longer to disengage to flush or the buffer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you think about it. Like you need you need a system that focuses when you need to focus. Focuses like a laser beam, keeps your eye on the prize, whatever you want to call it. Right, that mm -hmm. is working memory. 
and to ignore information outside what you need, right? And then that's inhibitory control. And then um, when I'm done with it, I don't need this anymore. Free up capacity, move on, boom. Okay. Okay. So all of these things kind of kind of work together. Um, so yeah, if we start and to they work, predict a lot of success in life, I have to say. I, I will be uh, unable to talk about a stereotype between men and women, which is that that um, women think that they can juggle a lot of things at the same time. So that might be yeah. less inhibitory control because you're going, uh, you know, oh, I'm answering the phone. I'm writing this code. Oh, I'm making dinner. I'm doing these different things. I'm switching uh, interfaces uh, where where a lot of men say they just simply can't do that. They can't, uh, you know, write something down and keep talking at the same time. So so which kind of which kind of, you know, some of those things could be a good thing and some could be a bad thing on both sides, I think. But we're veering yeah, way off of the point of the of the. Yeah, topic, so I right? think here the issue is that like, why would you be measuring these things? Well, when you're coding, you have to keep in mind what's going on at the level of the, the stuff that you're writing. You have to retrieve the actual how to write a function, how to do whatever, right? What's the syntax? What's the order in which I need you know need to write these things? And you also have to uh, keep in mind where the. So you might be writing the piece of the code, the line of the code, but you also have to keep in mind the bigger thing that you're trying to accomplish in that tiny little section of code, mm-hmm. and then the bigger thing as well. Right, right. Um, so they, they, their conclusions now came, uh, they had uh, three major uh, things in the graphs that I got out of it. Um, and so one of them was learning rate predictors. So the things that were most correlated with learning rate like how fast did somebody progress through these lessons uh with the learning yeah. rate this is all i'm talking about is how fast did they progress through the lessons not how well did they learn but how fast did they go through it the number one uh correlated thing was language aptitude at 43 percent second was right. fluid reasoning uh right. the third was this temporal beta power thing and the fourth was right. num- numeracy so if, right. if you just look at that one, you go, wow, you learn to code faster if you're good at languages and, and the numeracy has nothing to do with it. But that's only one of the things they studied, which was I, th- I thought was really good because they looked at the learning rate was one thing. The second thing they looked at was programming accuracy. And the number one uh, contributor to that was fluid reasoning. Yeah. So that was interesting. You're, it, you would you would almost think accuracy might be more related to um, the um, the non squirrel stuff, the uh, inhibitory control, or something like that. But but accuracy was fluid reasoning, then language aptitude, and then working memory updating. Yeah. So yeah. that 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 one was really interesting to me. But then declarative knowledge, that one you said where they could explain it. The number one contributor in that one was fluid reasoning. And the second was the low gamma power. So in, in none of these did numeracy take the, take the top spot, right? Yeah. And so I think it's important to look at that panel of the four plots and then to say these are just what we would call, I think they are pairwise Actually, I, I took those, what I just described, I took from the, uh, the, the notes, not from the graphs. And I said, learning rate predictors, number one was fluid aptitude and numeracy was uh, the lowest one. 
Yeah. Okay. That does that does come out in the graph. So there is a 0.27 R squared on the numeracy graph uh, for your learning rate. So that is correlated a fair amount more than that that low power gamma nonsense, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, but it's also um, some some of these measures have a very long history behind them and a very a much bigger scientific literature behind them and so uh and you're measuring a much more focused thing uh with a better tool so in some ways these eeg measures are much less developed and so therefore i'm not surprised that they account for less of the variance i also think i also think um i mean i could be wrong but i also think these are what we would call just simple correlations, these four plots, A, B, C, D. Mm -hmm. And so this is when you measure, when you're trying to predict Python learning rates using only the numeracy score, only fluid reasoning, only language aptitude, right? Oh, and so right. When, when you put them all in a blender, so it's not, so look at there. It's when you look at that, it's not that, and don't get too hung up on, on panel C, numeracy is 0.27, and panel B, numeracy uh, language is 0.31. Those are pretty similar. I mean, I, That's I don't pretty close together. Know the error is around that, but they're they're yeah, they're those are you know they're pretty similar. And so when you measure things separately, you get a you get one. It's like they all play a role here. But when you put them all in a big blender and consider them all at once, then you say, if I'm if I could measure all of these things, if I have all this information, some of this information is redundant, right? So sometimes you're measuring the same thing. And to some extent, your language aptitude and numeracy ability, numeracy aptitude, measure overlapping ideas. Now I want you to think of a Venn diagram in which you have a construct, an idea called language aptitude, right? And now mm -hmm. another thing called numer you know, numerical aptitude. Those are not completely separate from each other. They overlap to some extent. So where they overlap, they're measuring similar kinds of things. Okay. And where they don't overlap, they're measuring separate kinds of things. And so you would take all these measures, put them all together in, think of it as a blender. And now it's not a, a simple correlation. It's like a multiple level correlation that we call a multiple regression. And this is what I think that, that they've done. And if you do that, that's when you find out, okay, once we account for the contribution, we're trying now to predict. So mathematically, mathematically what happens is, and I think this is how they did it. So mathematically what happens is you're, you go, okay, you know, if I have all this information, the biggest predictor, the biggest thing, the best predictor of Python learning rates is language aptitude. And mm -hmm. then once I have that in the mix, what else in the Venn diagram? How can I build together a Venn diagram to predict the rates at which you learn Python while not repeating what I already know? So what's mm. the unique, what's next that's going to add something over and above what we can predict by knowing Python? So I'm sorry, by, by um, language learning, right. right? And now that's when you find, oh, well, what's the next, what is the next thing that predicts? So what do they say is the next thing that predicts? You might um, want to look now at figure three, which is now this is a bar graph. 
And I think that yeah. that's where I got yeah. the numbers that I that's was right. spouting. That's right. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yes, so if we look yes. at learning okay. rate, the the in right. it's a stacked bar graph. So each one of these adds up to 100%. Yep. And language aptitude yep. is the biggest contributor. The next one is unexplained. And numeracy is down real low. It's real. It's a real small contribution. Yeah. So you see those dark blue bars, the unexplained variants. Those are the dots that conceptually fall off the line. Okay. Right. So that's error. So we don't know. So before we started this study, it was all dark blue. We had no idea. Okay. Right. And now we're trying to reduce the blue bars. So it's... um, then we have lang- where is language aptitude? Well, what it looks language aptitude is the salmon in the learning rate uh, oh, graph. Because I'm not, okay, it looks very different on my monitor. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but yeah. but it, so that's learning rate. Learning rate. It looks like it's got a giant piece of it. Like I said, that forty three percent of that bar graph is is, uh, right. is language yeah. aptitude. But when you look at yeah. programming accuracy, a huge portion. Over fifty percent of it is general cognition, and uh, general cognition was. Oh shoot! I thought I wrote it down. What that was? Yeah. Um, well, so it's. I, I, oh, dog on it. I thought I had it on what general cognition meant, but that was different than. Um, it's fluid reasoning, working memory, working memory spent. All those the gas and brake we were talking about before. Okay. Okay, so so really, if you think about it, that's just like a. T- let's think of it this way: it's almost like the things that help you focus on what you need to focus on and ignore the things you don't, not get distracted. Uh, but was fluid reasoning in that as well? Yeah. So yeah, here is where now comes General the rantlet. Skill. Here comes the yeah. rantlet. Okay. There's a big difference between learning to write stuff in a programming language to code uh-huh. and programming. So uh, imagine you had two people working on a task and one person would be handed uh, the problem to be solved. We have this uh, giant vat of, of data that's been collected by this radar system on, a, on an aircraft. Uh, we've taken a bunch of radar data. We need to synthesize it and figure out what it means. So the programmer, the computer scientist, the, the it would be uh, tasked with trying to figure out how do we break that problem down into its constituent pieces in order to 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 run write a program that would uh, would actually reduce this to meaningful data. That's what a programmer does. A coder says x equals seven, you know, and, and types it. You know, I'm going to make an array. You know, it's it, it's a different thing. And and I'm not I'm not saying that any of this uh, testing is invalid. In fact, I would go along with it. Is if this kind of fluid reasoning thing, um, it, it sounds like it's correlated. That would say that you do need people who can take higher level education courses in math and 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 uh, you know take physics, take chemistry, you know, take these kind of classes that challenge you to learn how to do experiments and and have the rigor to to build the models that someone can code then you need those people to take those higher level math courses. But what it does leave open is what if you just want to learn to code? You just want to be somebody who can write some JavaScript code, make web apps, you know, uh, you don't need to be the person who is going to figure out how to, how to take this vat of, of radar data and disassemble it or write the next AI. 
and I think we haven't done that. We haven't got those those programs where you can just say, I'm going to get get certified in this programming language, but it, or maybe we do. But the university courses to become a computer scientist, I don't think that that's wrong, that those are requirements to have those higher level math courses. I don't think this proves that wrong, I should say. Well, I don't think anyone's study proves anything. So I, so here, okay. So is this, is the ball now in my court to rant back? At you? Yes, yes. Rant lit back. Okay. Okay. So a number of things. One is that they haven't just done code here. There's coding. This is actually, they've got a problem solving task, which is that rock, paper, scissors task. So yeah, we didn't talk about that. They have to write, they have to write a rock, paper, scissors game at the end. Yeah. So that's a problem solving. That's just not straight up coding. It's not, how do I write the code for the air? You know, how do I, how do I program this aircraft so that it lands without crashing? Right. It's not that, but it, 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 it is a problem solving test. There's a whole prior literature here, huge literature uh, on the relationship between or among working memory, fluid intelligence, all that kind of stuff, all the things they've measured here and problem solving. It is one of the things that you can measure early on in someone's life. It predicts their success in whole vast numbers of situations, uh, regardless of like in situations that you would think of as quite math heavy. It predicts just vast numbers of things. Um, so I think what they've done here is a, is a kind of analog to that situation. Uh, and that's the first thing. Second is nothing in here supports the idea that someone shouldn't be taking math. Nothing. So what, it's, what I think is interesting here is not that it's is not the math results because you can see if you look at panel C, so numeracy matters. What but what you also see is that the new part here is that language really matters. Language. <laughs> yeah. And why does why does language matter? Language matters because like if you look at, you know, the pre-SAT, I think it's still done this way. But this is the one where they pick the National Merit Scholars, right? The way they do that calculation and and if you take someone's pre-SAT scores, so the, you know, explain the for of, those people who aren't the, weren't from the United States. The preliminary, okay, so the standard SAT aptitude is the, test. It's the standard aptitude test for the, um, well, you take it as a sophomore, I think, calling it an achievement test. Yeah, you take it in your second year of high school, typically. It's, it's got two functions. One is to give you practice taking the, the actual SAT, which is really the, the exam by which, um, you get triaged into the kinds of, uh, universities that you're eligible to apply for well not eligible you can apply for anything but you know acceptance mm -hmm. so uh and the pre-sat gives you practice but it also is used to calculate uh a group of students across the united states who are then called national merit scholars and they amount to last time i looked uh one half of a percent of the top scores in each state all pooled together and the score, the way they choose those people, again, I just tried to bang around a little bit this morning to find out if they're still doing it this way. It looks like they're still doing it more or less this way, is to take your score on all the verbal, like language types of tests, take that score, double it, and add it to your math score. Now, why would they do that? Is it because they hate math? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. Is it because math doesn't matter? No, it's because 
what they're trying to do is predict success. And the educational testing service, the people who run the SAT, they do huge amounts of really long, 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 like decades worth of data showing about what predicts success in college, at university. And they have that, they do the calculations that way because what predicts success is your ability on verbal tasks. And you'd be like, why, why? Because you hate language, Allison, because you hate words. But in fact, if you think about it, you have in language, there is an underlying almost numerical relationship that is completely transparent to you because you've already learned it. So languages have a syntax and a structure, computer languages, English, other languages, right? So you have to put words in a certain order. There's a certain logic to doing it. There's almost like a certain algorithm. That's People the grammar. learning English would right. say that that's not true, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah, it's the exception, right? Um, and analogies, huge, you know, huge logical relationships, conceptual relationships. So there's a vast amount of overlap between your facility with language, all in all its aspects, and your numerical ability. So you find these really interesting relationships. And if you take someone's the highest scores on the uh, on the SAT, the, the pre-SAT, uh, and also you can give people who are like 13 years old, and there's a lot of research on this in the psychology literature. You can give people who are like 13 years old, kids who are 13 years old, similar kinds of tests, and then you follow them out the course of their life up to like they're you know 40, 50 years old or whatever it is, and you see that their scores on these tests predict how well they do and all, like it predicts, like I was saying earlier, right? It predicts how many like patents they have. It predicts their success in whole vast numbers of things. And this it is just doubling of, two times the language score plus one times the, science, part, yeah, the math I think score? That some of those, <clears throat> some of those things, not all things, but some of those things. But the thing is like when you get to this top level of really people who are, can do a lot of things and who are really talented all these skills are like related so it's as tempting as it is to say i like math i don't like poetry or what that's not really what we're talking about we're talking about a kind of language and 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 logic and here here in particular it's a fascinating idea because really what they're saying is can we just consider the possibility please that in fact uh, computer languages are languages. Right. Can we just maybe speak about like their languages? And the reason that this I find is so important, one of the reasons I find this, it's not just the science and the, the underlying conceptual advance. It's that there's another, some other work that came out of the University of Washington a few years ago showing that one of the reasons that girls don't go, don't stay in computer science isn't because they're not good at it. Because if you think about it, girls outstrip boys in their language ability. They mm -hmm. just do, right? Girls are more f verbally fluent than boys. They just have better language ability. It's part of the, a big chunk of the reason they, they drop out is that they, it's very, it's seen as a very boy-centric topic, right? So you walk into a room and it's got all these sort of, um, yeah, 
okay, now I'm going to, you're going to start arguing back with me, but whatever it is, like Star Wars-y kinds of things and all these posters on the wall and guys with these Football black players t-shirts or whatever. Yeah. Aggressive, oh, therefore I am. And all this uh, uh, almost aggressive masculine kind of version of computer science. And if I remember this work at the UW correctly, what they, they worked with some classrooms and they showed that if you just take out that overtly masculine veneer and and move to more neutral even decorations like change the colors on the walls and just put up ordinary like can we just please maybe have some gender free posters you know like mm-hmm. just things yeah. that aren't stereotypically guy stuff then what you find is a lot more of these girls stay in so this is another nice message to get people through so it's not i don't want anyone to say oh i don't numbers don't matter of course numbers friggin matter right right but this is this is language it matters is a lot language matters a lot and it's partly because language verbal facility is like the it's like the king of abilities right so if you have very good verbal aptitude you can do a whole ton of things you can do whole tons of things you and i so should have been more successful yeah. than we are yeah, I'm not sure that language aptitude means rabbiting and arguing. <laughs> you know, it's, fu- it's funny. We should, I, been, we should have been a lot more successful, Allison. I, uh, I actually had a manager of mine, uh, John Murphy. I remember he asked me, what kind of stupid engineering school did I go to since I could write so well? Yeah, he qu- yeah. he was kidding, but you know it was an interesting joke that he was questioning my engineering degree because I could communicate, and the the stereotypical yeah. engineer, you know, grunts mostly and and would rather be in a you know in a hole not talking to anybody. Yeah, uh, you know we do a lot of people a disservice by compart a lot of students a disservice by compartmentalizing skills, artificially compartmentalizing skills, and overweighting some skills you know, at the expense of others. And it's easy to say, we don't need people learning, you know, languages or whatever. It's, it's crazy. When I did my PhD, uh, and I don't even know if this is still a requirement because it was so long ago, but you used to have to demonstrate ability in a, in a, a second language to get your PhD. Hmm. Like sometimes you can see why this is. I don't know if it's, I don't even know if it's still true because let's face it, this was like a thousand years ago. But if you were, say, majoring in chemistry, you had to be able to know some German to work your way around some of these articles, right? Because uh, that really, at least when I, yeah, when I was a chemistry major, I was an undergraduate chemistry major. When I was a chemistry major, you had to really know. I mean, you would be sent to the library and some of these articles, some of these journals were in German and other ones were in Russian. And, and at you least actually Russian, had to be able to read them. Well, no, but if you couldn't read them, you were hosed. So as far as I know, we, I learned a few rudimentary, just chemistry specific words and phrases. And like then to you be able to understand the graphs, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Is, which yeah, one is the yeah. Y axis? <laughs> Speaker. Uh, right. But no, I, I mean, I can't speak German. And 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 it used to be like one of my professors, I remember saying, you had to learn, you know, the, enough German to work your way around some of these articles. I can't believe that's still true. But in any case, so I don't know if it was a holdover when I did my PhD or whatever, but I had to learn a second language. 
But here's the thing. I didn't have to learn German or Russian. I could learn statistics because that was considered to be a second language. And the statisticians argued up and down and said, we go to conferences with people who speak all different kinds of languages and we communicate and statistically write things on boards and everyone knows what we're talking about. So there you go. So, and you could say, all right, is that math or is that well, it, what is that? It's and funny the, and the you bring that up. Both. It, it, it's funny that you would bring that up because one of the conclusions I got from reading this article is that to be a psychologist, you got to be really good at math because there's a lot of math in this. All these weird statistical things. I never took stats in college and uh, getting my even getting my master's in mechanical engineering. Never did any statistics at all. But I, so there's a lot of the stuff in here like I've just read right over. ICC equals 0.996, 95% confidence interval from F35P less than 0.001. What? <laughs> I don't know what any of that meant. <laughs> to do good psychological science, so not all psychologists do, you know, the behavioral research and, and you know, and then even fewer are, are, are good enough at it. But And I would have to say I consider myself someone who's only you know, moderately good at it because statistical techniques are changing all the time. I don't, I wouldn't want to go into something that's too complicated. I've been talking with a colleague about modeling something and it's really, I was like, oh, it's making my brain hurt. But yeah, you're right. I mean, science requires a lot of ability to do statistics. And sometimes I say to students, you think statistics it's all just math, 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 math. And, you know, you need math. But why? why? What is the, the math is describing pictures, actually. Mm-hmm. So when you look at these graphs here, A, B, C, D, what you see is we're, we're talking about expressing concepts with pictures. And you do that efficiently with numbers. That's really what we're doing here. That's a, so that's if I say, well, if one it, goes yeah. up, the other goes up. Right, yeah. right. A one a one step change in this one thing produces a a two step change in this other thing. Right. That's really what you're talking about. You're talking about power and impact and relationship, and that the dots off the line are where we don't. You know, there's that's error. Does that mean we've made a mistake? And no, it just means we don't know what's happening well enough. If we knew it was happening well enough, all the dots all these would things fall would on be the on, line. on some line, and maybe the line wouldn't be a straight line. It'd be a uh, sinusoid or whatever, well, be it uh, parabola. Well, that's right, because now we're trying to see, you know, does a linear relationship work here? And mm-hmm. also, those uh, when you look at the line and you're, um, you see, there's like the blue shading off the line. Right. That is an interval. That is a that is kind of a margin of error that says, well, this line probably in real life is could be anywhere here, tilted up or down. Most, you know, I'm pretty confident. You could probably drop a second order polynomial through there too and do make it even more interesting, right? <laughs> make it even more complicated. Yeah. It, uh, but so it, you're probably saying in you know, this is our best guess about what's happening in the population at large. We take a sample that we hope is, you know, more or less representative of who we want to generalize to in the population at large. We think that the line would probably move uh within the blue the the shaded blue part. I mean, that's a reasonable kind of margin of error, like you would hear in a poll, you know? Okay. Uh, and yeah. And so, so I, well, I, I find see. it really interesting what you're saying about, about language and, and 
uh, and statistics because and the the third of that uh, the third axis is the ability to to make the graph that says what you learned or or oh, or or graph it yeah. in order to understand what it says. One of one of my favorite yeah. phrases is is and that's a skill that I call turning data into information. So I can give you a spreadsheet with a bunch of numbers on it, but that's just data. That isn't information. It's information when you get it graphed in a way that it tells a story. Yeah, well, this is whole this data visualization thing is it's just a whole thing. And it's becoming so you have to you spend a lot of time. Oh, actually, I just funny you say this. I just noticed um these normal distributions off to these, I'm sorry, these distributions, these histograms off to the side of these graphs. The side here. and the top. I just noticed this. Yeah, the side. Yeah, the I don't top. know what those mean. So let me describe this for the listeners. So we've got this this uh, square, and we've got the diagonal line through it. And we've got the scatter plot around it, and a kind of a blue shading that she was talking about. The line is probably tilted within there, but on the top and on the side are like some bar graphs with a best fit curve put through them. Yes. One, one, so the one ones, on top the and one on the side. Vertical, the ones that are vertical, you'll see they're all the same, and that's because it's the distribution of the scores of what they're measuring rate of learning. Uh, what do you mean by vertical? The ones that are above the little graph? The ones that are, the ones that are. The, the bars are vertical. Ones. Okay. The ones that are going up and down. You see, okay. they're all the same. That's no. because it's rate of learning, which is all the same. Yeah. By all the same. Well, on all, on, on graphs B, C, and D, all the ones that are, the, those, the vertical shape the distribution on the sides. is all the same. The one on the sides yeah, the are side. all the same, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's because it's a rate of learning, the distribution of rate of learning, and the one on the top oh. is the x, whatever's on the x-axis. So that must be the distribution of language aptitude, and then on C, the one on the top is the distribution of numeracy, and on the other one, it's the fluid reasoning. Yeah, they lost so me on communicating you. that. <laughs> all right, it's just giving you the information about how those scores are distributed in the sample. So bottom line from uh, reading this paper and studying it and what I've learned from you today is that it is completely logical if you meet someone who's really good at language to say, hey, have you ever thought about a career in programming? Because you might be really good at it. Uh, yeah. As opposed yeah. to the, the math nerd, you know, who's sitting there for sport, you know, uh, calculating uh, fast Fourier transforms or something just for fun. That's what they doodle. You know, that might not be the main thing that made that made somebody a good programmer. Yeah, I think what I think is reasonable <clears throat> is just to <sighs> let us not put people in boxes. Right. And. um I don't know that this says that. Well, this says there are other other boxes we can put, that we can take people out of and put them into this job. <laughs> yeah, I, so I think what this I think what this is suggesting to us, these data suggesting to us, is that if someone says I'm no good at this because I'm good at languages, languages are my thing, that we then say, well, you know, let's not encourage people to think of themselves as just language people or computer people, you know, programming people. Mm -hmm. So you might find that you have, and you know, the, even the fact that they're doing this research is to address some kind of, uh, like they, my guess is that they probably were reading this going, you know, there's probably this belief out in the world that you need to be 
a math geek to be a good programmer. But in fact, programming requires a lot of problem solving and programming languages have, they're really languages. And so therefore, isn't it reasonable to assume that language learning might be at least as important and in fact, possibly more important when we consider all these measures as a whole. So I am hoping that this work like this, plus the work I told you about a few minutes ago, also from the UW, uh, we could use that together to get, um, combine all this together to get more women into the field. I think that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Um, Saying that, just saying, can we please stop? You know, they're talking about access. Yeah. The um, the bottom line sentence here is says um, of their abstract says these results provide a novel framework for understanding programming aptitudes, suggesting that the importance of numeracy may be overstated in modern programming education environments. Yeah, it's well, pretty mild. Isolation. Sorry. A numeracy considered in isolation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I also think that this is clear that Sandy should learn to program because she's uh, she was a French teacher and uh, she does a lot of quilting. So she does a lot of it, it, she has to do a lot of math to calculate how she puts these pieces together. So I oh, think yeah. she should become Absolutely. a programmer. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. So can we just give her that homework? <laughs> <laughs> I'll send her the uh, the Code Academy. By the way, you can all go to Code Academy for free and do these tests and, and learn to, to program in Python and test and see how you do. So this has been really fun. Uh, Dr. Gary, it's as good. Sorry. Oh, you can call me Marianne Allison. Oh, thank you. Marianne. Always a pleasure to have you on. Yeah. I don't feel very dream crushed. So we'll, we'll have to have you back to find something to depress us. I about. almost aspirational. I know I would like to, I just, I feel, I feel kind of gross when I don't crush any dreams. <laughs> and when I just didn't just kind of a feel good message, I just don't like it. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, if people wanted to follow you on Twitter, they would find you at uh, Dr. Lamb Chop. Dr. Lamb Chop. All right. Thanks again, Marianne, for being on the show. Okay. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Did you notice there weren't any ads in the show? That's because this show is not ad supported. It's supported by you. If you learned something, or maybe you were just entertained, consider contributing to the Podfeet podcast. You can do that by going over to podfeet.com and look for the big red button that says support the show. When you click that button, you're going to find different ways to contribute. If you like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal button. If you want to make a recurring contribution, click the weekly Patreon button. Or another way to contribute is to record a listener contribution. It's a great way to help the NoSilla Castaways learn from you. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Maybe you want to talk to other NoSilla Castaways. There's two great places to do that. You can do that in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack, or you can join our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.